Welcome to the Physics Capsule podcast. This is where we give you a scientific perspective of the world. We're a couple of physicists and science communicators. Join us as we indulge in conversation and try to reason out the physics behind the world around you. Almost everyone loves flying. That's right. There's something about being up in the air that feels almost magical to a lot of people. Me included. Maybe it has to do with gaining a new perspective. Looking down at the clouds instead of up. That's true. We promised you at the end of our last episode that we'd talk about some physics you might encounter during your next flight. We want to talk about some of those things now. Some that help your flight and some that you might just see while you're on a flight. And maybe something you've never really given a lot of thought to. Let's start at the beginning. You board your plane, you find your seat and the plane taxis to the runway and comes to a halt. The acceleration to take off begins once ATC tells the plane the runway is clear and the plane accelerates forwards. When the plane taxis it's usually maintaining around 30 kilometers an hour or so, just like a car. But when it's about to take off it accelerates to anywhere between 150 to 200 kilometers an hour. So clearly this great velocity has something to do with the whole takeoff procedure. There needs to be a balance between the takeoff weight and the air pressure outside. The takeoff weight is the weight of you and all your fellow passengers and all your checked in and carry on baggage, any cargo, food in the pantry and anything else you can imagine. All the weight which the plane has to bear. That's all true, but one might argue that the secret to getting a plane off the ground lies in its wings. At least the science. At least the science is in its wings. Yes, it's called an aerofoil shape. It was a remarkable idea that the Wright brothers hit upon in the early 1900s that helped them design the first practical aircraft. An aerofoil shape is like an oval that's squished on one of its narrower ends. An aerofoil shape looks somewhat like the end of a paddling oar. It has a wide front edge and a narrow almost sharp rear end when you look at the wing from the side of a plane. The wide front edge is tilted slightly upwards. What this does is slice through the air so that some of the oncoming air goes under the wing undisturbed while some of it goes over the wing. The air going over the wing ends up passing through a narrow region as a result of which it speeds up. There's something called Bernoulli's principle in physics. It tells you how the pressure and velocity of a fluid are related to each other. Essentially, the principle says that the faster a fluid moves over a surface, the lesser is the pressure it applies on that surface. Here's a nice analogy. When you're walking, you place your feet on the ground and apply a lot of pressure. But when you run, your feet skim the ground and apply much less pressure. The same goes for liquids. In other words, due to Bernoulli's principle, the fact that an aerofoil shape causes air to move faster above a wing than below it means there is less pressure above the wing than below. As a result, the aircraft feels an upward force. This is known as lift. But this is not the only force acting on an aircraft. Broadly, there are four forces. First, there are turbines or engines pushing an aircraft forwards. We call this the thrust. But there's some force that the oncoming wind applies that opposes this forwards motion. We call this drag. So when its thrust is greater than the drag it feels, your aircraft moves forwards. 
This is extremely similar to how most motor vehicles work. Well, there are two more forces in aircraft experiences. There's a lift, of course, which causes the aircraft to move vertically upwards. But the takeoff weight counteracts it to keep the aircraft down. Exactly. If you can generate enough of a pressure gradient to generate, in turn, enough of a lift to exceed the takeoff weight, your plane moves upwards. Combine the thrust moving you forwards and the lift moving you upwards, and you have your plane executing a beautiful takeoff sequence, putting you up in the air in a matter of minutes. We don't mean to scare you, but a plane isn't really safe just because it has left the ground. That's true. If the plane doesn't maintain a certain minimum velocity, the lift generated may not be able to counteract gravity. And if gravity wins, the plane will just fall to the ground. Most passenger aircraft maintain a cruising speed of about 800 to almost 1000 kilometers an hour. They then continue to fly at a cruising altitude that is chosen based on the air pressure outside the plane and the drag generated high up in the atmosphere that together allow the engine to function as efficiently as possible. Most of these calculations are made by onboard computers these days, so you can sit back and enjoy the view outside your window. As you're looking outside your window, the first thing you notice is... The sunset. No, the first thing you notice is the window itself. Huh. You notice that there are window panes, three of them, and there's a hole between them. I thought there were two. Actually, two is all we need, but we have a third one as a protective casing. So the one right next to your seat is the protector. Correct. Uh, you sit next to what is called the scratch pane. It simply protects the pane outside it. But the hole isn't in the scratch pane. No, it's called a bleed hole and it's in the middle pane. Its job is to balance the pressure difference between the cabin inside and the atmosphere outside the plane. Typically, as you go to higher altitudes, the air pressure drops. This is simply because there's an increasingly shorter column of atmosphere above you to apply a pressure on you. The pressure in the cabin drops too. Right, but not at the same rate because there are pressurization systems built into the plane to maintain a comfortable pressure for its occupants. What the bleed hole does is balance the pressure difference between the cabin and the outside of a plane by allowing for a tiny bit of air to flow through from the inner pane through the air gap and onto the outermost pane. This means the huge pressure outside is acting on the outermost pane rather than on the pane right next to your face. It's a safety precaution at the end of the day and should the outermost pane shatter, there's still the middle pane to bear the brunt. What else do we see on a plane? Multiple sunsets, possibly, but there's not much physics in that. Right, that's, it's just a question of perspective. You see the sun setting, and if your plane moves in that general direction fast enough, you'll see the sun appear to rise again and set eventually as you change direction. You could also choose to keep chasing the sun. If you are the captain. <laughs> but besides changing the direction, you might see the sunset if it disappears behind a mountain too. Speaking of mountains, you see a lot of them on your journey, particularly on international flights. And we always fly well above mountains. That's true. The average altitude at which a jumbo jet flies is around 10 to 12 kilometers, while the tallest mountain on Earth is just shy of 9 kilometers. Which begs the question, are we flying that high to avoid mountains? Because 
We did say the cruising altitude is chosen based on engine efficiency, drag and lift, not chosen based on what mountains we can avoid. The idea is really the other way around. Regardless of our cruising altitude, mountains on Earth can only grow so tall. There are mountains, for example on Mars, that are twice as high as Everest. When you look out your window on a plane and spot a few majestic looking mountains, you are really seeing a little balancing game underway. Think of a block of ice. It's a solid, of course. Say you place something heavy on it. The ice will stay put, as will the weight. Now go on increasing the weight by adding more objects and making a tower that grows taller and taller and you'll notice the combined weight exerts a pressure on the ice that not only causes it to melt, but eventually fully liquefies it and brings the tower down. Mountains are just like that. They lie on the top of molten rocks and they can keep growing taller and taller, but once they cross a certain critical height, their mass overwhelms the rocks beneath, melts them, and causes the mountain to sink until it is safely within the critical height again. It also has to do with the gravitational pull. Correct. If you are on a smaller planet with a weaker gravitational pull, mountains can generally grow taller. On planets much larger than the Earth, the tallest mountains will be much shorter. So it's not really about flying high enough to avoid mountains, it's just that no mountains can ever grow beyond a certain height anywhere on Earth. The critical height varies from place to place, of course. And from planet to planet. This wouldn't be a complete discussion if we didn't at least mention turbulence. The phenomenon of planes shaking that scares so many people out of their wits. That's a funny way of putting it, but yes, when you're up in the air and your plane starts shaking wildly, it can be pretty uncomfortable. Yes. You're sitting in your seats, helplessly wondering what's going on. What's going on, of course, are some more pressure games outside your window. As you go higher up in the atmosphere, you're traveling across regions of varying wind speeds. When you leave a region of the atmosphere that has fast winds and enter a region with slower winds, the sudden change in the external velocity can throw your plane off by a short distance, effectively rocking it around. This is actually an indirect effect of the sun. Like a temperature gradient. Right. When the sun heats up the atmosphere, it does so to varying degrees at various altitudes. The changes in temperature causes a change in pressure. That's part of the universal gas laws. At a given pressure, the volume of a gas increases or decreases with temperature. At a given temperature, the pressure of a gas increases with a decrease in volume and vice versa. Consequently, for a given volume of gas, an increase in temperature means an increase in pressure. Couple that with Bernoulli's principle, and you can see why such varying pressures leave you with layers of the atmosphere that have varying velocities. So the next time your aircraft experiences turbulence, just sit tight. It's just the plane traveling like it's supposed to. When a plane turns in midair, or banks as we call it, if you have a cup of water on the tray in front of you, you'd have noticed that the water doesn't spill over. Instead, it just stays flat, parallel to the floor of the plane rather than parallel to the ground below. 
this this is a classic case of centripetal force in action. The thing to remember is that an aircraft carrying passengers never rolls. That means it never just rotates about an axis running along the length of its body. I think it's just time to mention that there are three motions any aircraft can execute. A pitch, a roll and a yaw. A pitch is when it moves its nose up and down. And a yaw is when it spins about a vertical axis. Most maneuvers are some combinations of a pitch, a roll and a yaw. In other words, your plane never just rolls, it rolls and raises its nose. The combined effect is what makes it take a turn. This ensures that the plane and everything in it feels a centripetal force away from the center of the arching turn. That is to say, your drink feels a force emanating radially outwards from the center of the turn and pushing it towards the floor. So long as your plane banks this way without just rolling, your drink will be perfectly safe. This is almost nothing to do with the pilot flying the aircraft itself. So long as he rolls and pitches simultaneously, the centripetal force will act in a direction that will keep your drink in your glass no matter how steep the turn. This is like spinning a mug of water around your head. Do it fast enough and you can even spin the mug upside down without spilling a single drop. Your plane banks and sets itself in line with the runway where it's been asked to land. The landing sequence mainly has to do with getting the center of gravity onto the runway. On most planes these days we have one wheel in the front of the aircraft and two at the back. These are called tricycle gear planes. The naming is obvious, but the advantage of this arrangement of wheels cannot be ignored. The fact that there is only one wheel in the front and there are two at the back means the center of gravity of the plane is located between the main wheels and the single front wheel. So when the plane hits the ground, if the three wheels form a triangle perfectly aligned to point along the runway, there's usually no trouble. But the cleverness of this arrangement becomes apparent when you realize what happens when the plane does not land perfectly aligned with the runway. Correct. Suppose the plane is pointing slightly towards the left. The center of gravity, being nearer to the rear wheels, will point slightly to the right. This conveniently cancels the misalignment and pulls the plane back on track. By contrast, loads of older planes had wheel arrangements with a single wheel under the tail at the rear end of the plane and two at the front. This shifted the center of gravity towards the front of the plane. So if such a plane lands with some misalignment, the center of gravity would, would be placed closer to the direction of misalignment and the plane would just steer further off the runway. This was quite hazardous. There are other troubles too, like crosswinds that blow perpendicular to a plane and can be especially dangerous. This reminds me of how some people call landings a type of controlled plane crash. Really? Yes, it's somehow mixed up with a controlled flight into terrain or sea fit, which is actually a crash. A landing, on the other hand, is a well-executed flight maneuver like any other. True. And dimming the cabin lights is only done as a precaution. To make sure your eyes get used to the dark, yes. But that's only in the evenings or nights. In the end, landing a plane is all about maintaining balance and orientation on the runway. The only danger is the approach velocity. The aircraft needs to land with a sufficiently small horizontal component and a near zero vertical component. Which is the ideal case, of course, but variations do exist in the vertical component, which is what causes a landing to be smooth or rough. The last thing that happens before a plane taxes back to its parking spot is really heartbreaking. Planes have flaps at the rear end of their wings, and these flaps are raised to create a sort of inverted aerofoil shape. 
that causes the air to move more slowly above the wing and quickly beneath it. So this is just the reverse of what happens when a plane is taking off. That's right. That's right. And it creates a pressure difference too, just like before. And that reduces the lift and causes a push downwards that ensures the plane stays on the ground. That eventually acts as a braking system. While it's pretty effective, most modern planes fly fast enough that they need other braking systems to assist them as well. The most effective one, perhaps, are the turbines themselves. These are spun in the opposite direction so they can reverse the thrust and dramatically reduce the plane's velocity. In addition to all this, of course, like any car or bicycle, planes have brakes on their wheels too. There's a lot more physics in action on a plane and outside it, of course, and we'd have to talk about those for hours. Maybe we can have a second part to this episode sometime soon. Of course. What we wanted to do in this episode was talk about flying inside our atmosphere as a contrast to flying in outer space. That's what we discussed in our previous episode. So if you haven't listened to that yet, you can do so on podcast.physicscapsule.com. You can also subscribe to the Physics Capsule podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Overcast, and wherever else good podcasts are available. And don't forget to tell a friend who you think might be interested in this show. We'll be back in our next episode where we'll talk about Pluto and discuss its status as a planet. The Physics Capsule podcast is recorded at St. Philomena's College, Mysore. It is hosted by V.H. Bilwadi and me, Roshan Sahil, from the Physics Department. See you again in a fortnight.